Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Please welcome Tom Parker Bowles. Well, ladies and gentlemen, Tom Parker Bowles is one of those very unlucky people who has the worst job in the world. He's regularly wined and dined and can fill his face and his stomach with the finest wines, the nicest food, and he gets paid for it too. So we're all very sorry for you, Tom, and we hope that things will improve. Now, not only that, but he's also likes to undertake kind of gastronomic odysseys, which is what is the subject of uh, Fool English, where he goes to various places, Lancashire to taste the hot pot, and Yorkshire to taste the tripe, and Somerset to taste the cider, and also, as the title implies, uh, tucks into several breakfasts, and it seems to be the one morning, so God knows how your stomach managed to cope with all this. Now, we should say, first of all, it is Fool English, and we are talking about food south of the border, but I think there's quite a lot of, particularly if you're I, criticism of supermarkets and general public taste that could apply equally north of the border, that's delicacies as deep-fried Mars bars that we all enjoy tying into from time to time. So tell me, Tom, what was the thinking behind this book? What first inspired you? Um, well, basically, it was when travelling a lot for food and, um, and going around the globe and stuffing my face, which is a you know, particularly difficult job, as you've said. Whenever I travelled, I go to America, I go to France, Italy, Spain, and every time they sort of, what are you, I'm English, they burst into hysterics. English food, this national joke, all across the world, ha, ha, ha. English cuisine, it's turgid, it's grey, it's lumpen, it's institutional. It really is, according to the rest of the world, the worst food in the world. So that always annoyed me, you know, especially as half these people, you know, you speak to a Florid Floridian or something like that, and he hadn't even moved out of Florida, let alone come to Britain or, you know, anything. So that was annoying. So, but then on the other hand, which is perhaps equally annoying, um, not so much annoying, but misguided perhaps, there's this great belief that you hear all the time that Britain's in the middle of a food revolution and, and everything's changed beyond recognition and producers and, and uh, restaurants and chefs, and it's all going crazy, and, and suddenly the British and the English eat very, very well. Um, and I've always thought this is an entirely middle-class uh, creation in that, you know, the likes of us and perhaps everyone here um, is eating more restaurants, buying more books, being interested in sustainable, local, seasonal, all those sort of buzzwords. But it's not, you know, Britain and England in particular has not changed um, particularly in, in, you know, as a nation of everyone eating well. That's entirely untrue. Childhood obesity is going up, diabetes. There are all these huge problems with processed foods, with supermarkets. Um, so I was interested, starting off to go on Full English, to go and see if there was some sort of truth in the middle. If, OK, fine, it's not true anymore that British food is the worst in the world. It's certainly not true at all, actually. On the other hand, this great revolution, this food revolution that we're supposedly living in the middle of, that might be a bit overblown as well. So I just went off round England, and as Al said, it was uh, England, you know, I could do full Scottish, full Irish, full, I mean, full Northern Irish, sorry, uh, full Welsh, but there was no agenda in that I'm just doing England and England's the only thing that matters. I just felt there's enough in England to do a book on, and then, you know, if I sell 20 billion copies of this or two, whatever it is, um, then I could go back and do full Scottish and the rest of it. So it was a journey to find out how the English and their food um, have, have adapted, moved on, and also history of why we eat the things we eat. So that's... Because <laughs> if, uh, I mean, the, one of the debates is, if you like, is the contrast between the supermarkets, and that's, I mean, supermarkets are marvellous things. Mm. Are, when one thinks about all the, the extraordinary choice, in fact, there's too much choice. You look at 37 different 
uh, olive oils, you think, my God, what should I choose? What's the best one? You're kind of reduced to impotence just by looking at all this, this vast consumer choice we have. But the argument is, I suppose, what we get supermarkets choose on our behalf and the kind of local producers, and that's very much a kind of argument that you go, you go to the man who breeds the pigs that you get the best bacon from and the man who grows the apples to make the best cider. Mm. Uh, and what's striking about all these people is how passionate they are. Give us a few examples of the people you... You know, you meet in the book. I mean, the, the supermarket question is, is quite a vexed one. As you say, supermarkets, when one opened, and I was growing up in Wiltshire in the 80s, 1981, Sainsbury's opened. Now, it was the most exciting thing my sister and I had ever come across. You know, forget the boring butcher and the baker and the fishmonger, all these, you know, that you, you knew them, they were boring. The supermarket, it was glitzy and shining and, you know, strip-lit corridors, and it was a sort of a, a mecca, really. Um, and nowadays, people can be too harsh on supermarkets as well, in that they say supermarkets are the root of all evil. They destroy towns, they destroy communities, they cut us off from the source of our food, which, for a greater part, is quite true. They're interested in profits, they're public companies. That is the nature of the beast. They have to make money. Um, so it's not an all-out attack on horrible supermarkets or rubbish and all the rest of it. Um, but I do think that if you see a supermarket, you, know, you, you lose your contact with the farmer, for example. So if, let's say I went down to Julian Templey, he, he does uh, cider brandy, he does the most wonderful Borough Hill cider, he's down in, in, in sort of uh, North Somerset, the most beautiful, um, you know, acres and acres and acres of all these different kinds of apple trees. Um, and he doesn't do it like many, many producers, he doesn't do it for the money, he's not in it for the profit. This is long, hard, generally boring work, miles removed from this sort of bucolic idea that we have of hoary-handed peasants, you know, tramping on apples and all the rest of it. It's hard work and he really doesn't make that much money. But when asked why he does it, he does it because he thinks that these apples, you know, this is a great English art, um, and that he can make a cider by blending, because as he says, the cider maker's art is not so much the single apple, it's the art of blending different apples together. Um, and he feels that by, you know, doing what he's doing, he's bringing back or, or just strengthening an old English tradition of cider making. Um, and again, the end product. So if you try a, a pint of that disgusting Strongbows or Magnus or any of that muck, you know, sort of fizzy, oversweet water that have brilliant advertising campaigns and tell us all that it's cool to drink 20 pints of cider, um, which is fantastic, but you taste this stuff and actually it, it comes through the flavour and the complexity and the depth sort of, spitting around, um, of, of the whole thing. So it's, whether it's bacon or sausages or uh, apple cider, that it was a passion that I found in these producers. And, it, it, and I wasn't soft soapy, I wasn't saying it's a lovely life, you know, being a cider producer. It's not, it's hard work, but the end product, that's for me what, what did it. And I like the way you went to sort of traditional uh, dishes. I mean, not for the first time I'm going to say, let's talk tripe, something I'm often accused of. <laughs> you went up to Yorkshire to discover <coughs> the best tripe. Now, that's very much an acquired taste these days. I remember I, we used to have it when I was growing up. The tripe gravy was wonderful with mashed <laughs> potatoes. So tell us about your tripe and your black pudding, ladies. Well, um, tri tripe is a difficult one. There's no way in a million years I can convert non-tripe lovers to loving tripe. It's slippery, it's smelly, it's, it's, it's a thought of it, viscera. You know, it's, it's, it's the cow's belly, one of four. Um, it's cheap, it has a lot of connotations for a lot of people who grew up, especially in the north, of, you know, sort of coming back and smelling the kitchen, stinking of tripe every Tuesday, or whatever it was. 
Um, and I used to hate tripe, you see, it's the most disgusting food that's ever been. And it actually was converted in France, typically, um, by it, when, you know, the key is to cut it very small, and there was uh, tri palermo de cayenne, which they cook with cider and carrots, and they seal it in the pot, and it sort of cooks down, and the, the tripe melts in the mouth. And if they call it something else, like cow, I can't really think of a nice way to put it, but, but if you came up with a nice word for tripe, it would be a much easier sell. Um, but it was a mainstay in the north, Lancashire and Yorkshire, there were thousands and thousands of tripe dressers and uh, tripe dressers is a lovely way of saying a tripe factory they stink um, as you can imagine cooking tripe this is even worse you walk in this sort of fetid smell of oh, well, you, know, you know what tripe smells like you know, I'm not going to go into it but it, it, it's fairly sort of animalistic and uh, lavatorial and all those things that perhaps you don't associate with the best food but now there are I think three or four tripe dressers left in the whole land and it, actually in Brighton that's where the headquarters of the tripe dressers association by some irony, you know, down south right. rather than up north. Um, but then again, it was like the fast food. So when the pubs closed in, let's say, 1930, 1940, you could wander back a bit pissed up uh, from the pub and grab your tripe from the tripe sellers. There's no market for tripe anymore. So apart from the Polish markets, the new markets coming in, eastern, uh, far eastern markets. So tripe sort of disappeared from our, from our national consciousness, which is a bit of a shame because it's cheap. It's nutritious, it's sustainable. So again, all these buzzwords that everyone loves to bandy around, you know, you can't fail. The problem is the taste and texture. But it was, I really feel that the... the <laughs> I'm not well, saying this, am delicious. I? <laughs> it's lovely, it has the most wonderful, unctuous, deep meatiness. Um, I mean, again, if, if when you have it sort of cold and a big slab, bang, and a bit of vinegar and a bit of pepper, there's nothing very sexy about it at all. But cooked well, I swear, it's good. But it's, it's just one of those dishes that... You know, you don't want to get too, uh, you know, sort of teary-eyed and ye old England and the dishes have all disappeared and how sad and progress is bad and, and, and retrospect, we have to look back rather than forward. That's all rubbish. But, you know, I think that people should be a little bit more adventurous, perhaps, in, in, in seeking out. Well, offal in particular, we still don't embrace offal. I love your black pudding lady from, from Bury, wasn't it? Not Burnley, Bury. Bury, I can never say it right. Tell, Bury, tell us about her. <coughs> she's called, she was called, in, 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 there's Berry Market, which I'm sure, am I saying Berry right? Yes, Berry. Yeah, Berry, Berry. Um, anyway, they, they can spot me from a mile away. Um, but it was in um, Berry Market, and I thought Berry Market would be like a sort of borough market, you know, lots of lovely artisan food stalls, and, and actually it was a proper working market, so you'd have the cheap knickers on one bit, then the cheap DVDs, and the sweet shop, and, but the, the food bit was astonishingly good, because the North West has fantastic produce. Um, and there was this, I went ages, got lost in Berry Market, looking for Mary's Black Pudding Stall. And she's been there for 30, 35 years, cooking up the best black puddings, the, you know, the blood and the, um, the oatmeal and all the rest of it. And the queue there was heartening, because you think black pudding, ugh, it's a bit icky, it's a bit bloody, it's a bit sausagey, but not in a nice way. Um, this is what they say, not me. Um, and I expect it to be much more the older generation, because the tripe lovers still were very much of the old generation, not, 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 uh, my generation, generations above me. But the queue there stretched you know, hundreds of metres back, and it was young, it was old, it was children, uh, men, women, it came across every demographic. And that sort of gives you, that's heartening, you know, there's regional speciality, and not just a regional speciality, one stall in one town that is, is supposedly the best of all. Um, and when people say, oh, you know, the British aren't interested in food, all the rest of it, that's untrue, because that proves straight away that get a good product, of course, with a good regional base and a regional fan base and you know the, the quality will show through and was mary's black pudding the best you'd ever tasted would you say well I, i'd never go into those sort of things because immediately you say that you get yeah. 100 people saying you're talking rubbish you know you come from the south and da 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 
from a purely uh, um, objective point of view, it was peppery, had a nice tang of pig, not too, you know, it can be over piggy, but this is really, really sort of a little thing, perfectly spiced, a bit peppery. And, you know, 100 years ago, they would each town around that area would use different herbs and spices. So some might use marjoram and, and, and sage, and others might use coriander seeds. So there's huge regional differentiation between the different bits. But fried up in, you know, fried bacon first, then fry the black pudding in the bacon fat, and then chuck a fried egg on top. I mean, that's a perfect breakfast. <laughs> a symphony of pig. And it's had a bit of a renaissance, <coughs> hasn't it, black pudding? And I see it in very fancy restaurant menus now, black pudding. It seems to have kind of uh, had a bit of a second coming, so we're all I mean, that, pleased about that. that. I mean, that's fantastic, because that, that was part of what I found out travelling around the country, was that for all the, this, this great food revolution, that you know, it's starting, things are starting to happen, but... There's a whole new breed of restaurateurs and chefs who are British chefs, modern British chefs, and they're bringing back all these favourites, all the, all the, whether it's Mark Hicks or Fergus Henderson, um, there's uh, Stephen Harris, there's, there's, a whole, there's about sort of 20, 25 at the Vanguard with this, I'd say new British cuisine, because if you're talking about Tom Kitchen up here, actually he's rather more Michelin-y, but still it's this, you know, suddenly realising we have, we live on, a, on an island, obviously, uh, we have a temperate climate and all food is history, climate and geography so we're pretty well suited on all three in Britain to produce fantastic dairy wonderful meat great fish and and slowly I think the, the chefs are beginning to find out how good our produce is and the people who eat as well so so are you a supporter of Jamie Oliver and his efforts to try and improve the nation's eating habits I totally I mean I, I probably I people I think when you get very famous like Jamie or Gordon or whoever Especially in Britain, people, once you get to the top, they're desperate to just bring you down. But I, I can't see anything wrong with Jamie at all. It's, he's doing a good thing. The only way Britain is going to start becoming, have a strong, entrenched food culture once more, is the children. Now, getting children to cook is more important, I think, than anything else. You know, get the next generation. And not just, I mean, forget local, forget seasonal, forget organic at that point. Fresh food, chopping an onion. You know, this is, this, you can move on to all those things naturally later, all those sort of, again, the buzzwords that supermarkets use to put the margins up and all the rest of it. But it's the children cooking. So, yes, Jamie, I think, is very... But you saw how much resistance there was. There was a famous incident of mothers <laughs> passing fish and chips into the school playground so that little Johnny and little <laughs> Gertie could tuck into, you know, fish and chips rather than the healthy food-on option, uh, option available in the school canteen and then there was I don't know if you saw the documentary he was trying was it one of the northern towns was it Yorkshire or mm. Lancashire <coughs> he was coming up against sort of entrenched resistance to his ideas that people just didn't want to know they wanted to stick with their supermarket grot so is this a kind of do you think this is a battle he'll win I think well, it's, it's not just Jamie's battle it's the likes of Prue Leith and all these people who are fighting the government and it's not just the government. Government, they're just nightmares. You know, this whole... I mean, the, the, the people who've been running farming for the last ten years, I mean, I wouldn't let them run a playground. Margaret Beckett running farming. Jesus. I mean, I mean it's, it's unthink... These are career politicians who haven't stepped into a pair of wellies. You know, the last good farming minister, I think, was Waldegrave, and that must have been mid-80s, I suppose. Um, so government say, yeah, 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 we care, and then they just bring out endless sort of reams of, of documents and papers and the rest of it. But... You know, good fish and chips, now and again, is, you know, if they were good going through the bars, you know, properly fried and beef dripping and good potatoes freshly cut, I mean, so, so be it. But, but I think eating this all the time is, is not such a good thing. Perhaps. Now, tell us about your own kind of food education. Where you, uh, what was home eating like? Um, home eating was, I just, I, my dad 
was a massively keen gardener, so he grew uh, tomato, everything in season. So all those things that, you know, asparagus or artichokes or tomatoes or whatever were all natural. So they weren't tomatoes until Sainsbury's came along. They weren't particularly tomatoes in, in the winter and you wouldn't have gay, you know, all the rest of the usual seasonal stuff. And my mother was a very good English basic cook, i.e. taking good ingredients and not mucking them around. So she couldn't bake. There were no cakes and puddings, all that sort of stuff. But give her meat or fish or salads and all that sort of stuff. And it was fantastic. So my sister and I grew up eating, you know, we had the farm down the road. We thought all this was normal. And going back to what I was saying earlier about Sainsbury's, you know, it was boring. You know, why do we have to go to the butcher? Why can't we, you know, why do we have to go to the farm down the road to get our thing? Why can't we go to Sainsbury's and get it all nicely packaged up and the rest of it? So, so far, so idyllic. Then age seven or eight, I was sent off to prep school, which, big deal, it wasn't the end of the world. Um, but the food was absolutely <laughs> filthy. I mean, it was obscenely disgusting. It was, uh, you know, the, I've talked about this endlessly, but bacon with a slight, or eggs with a slight fishy tang, cooked until that you, you could literally use it as a sort of weapon of mass destruction, and scummy bacon, and uh, sort of on Sunday roast day, the only you know, way you could tell the difference between beef, lamb, or pork was the colour. So beef was brown, I think chicken was whitish, but all pre-packed, you know, stuff full of, um, you know, sort of, salt and all the rest of it and it was just hideous so until then i thought it was my right to eat nice food i just didn't, didn't think at all then at school you know it turned a healthy appetite really into a i suppose an all-encompassing greed really. were things better at slow comprehensive that you attended uh, slow comprehensive <laughs> yes and it had a it had a, th a tuck shop which meant that if you hated sport like me and rubbish at sport um and didn't really do much you could just sit and eat all day bacon sandwiches and, stuff. <laughs> and that, that was my that was my uh, education so Yes, for, for that, that was, it was brilliant, so really. But were you, were you developing a palate at that time? Or well, I wouldn't just go that far, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, you knew what you liked. And I knew exactly what I liked and I knew what I didn't like. Um, but it was there that you started making those first forays into exotic climbs, you know, the curry house, the Chinese. And age 13, I thought the local golden chopsticks and Taj Palace were the greatest things that had ever been done. Looking back, it probably was fairly generic. Mm. Uh, Asian food but there you know that's when you start finding and I like this and I don't like this and chilies are good and da 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 but not even until university I ate very little I think <laughs> and drank more, most of the time more presumably. drinking and, <laughs> and then it was only after university where you realise one food's wonderful two as, as a single man then you have more chance if you said to a girl come and have dinner am I going too far um, it, it, it was better than going out to dinner because you could immediately say well stay for another drink. You didn't have to say, do you want to come back for a cup of coffee? Mm -hmm. um, so it was, it, 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 there was, and it wasn't, it wasn't being like pervy or anything. It just, <laughs> it just uh, made life easier. And then cooking's fun, you know, I think it's a... So what are you, what do you look for in a drink or in a piece of meat or fish or whatever? What are you looking for from a meal that marks it out in your view? I mean, I'm, I think I'm, the, the older I get, the more simple my tastes become in that it's all very well. We went off, my, my wife and I, to a restaurant called um, El Bulli, which, which I'm, sh I'm sure you know, 36 courses, five and a half hours. Fran Adria had this sort of genius and you'd get a peanut and it would appear in your plate, but it wouldn't be a peanut because it'd be a deconstructed peanut. The peanut would have been mashed apart, some liquid put into it, then it'd been put back in a mould, baked. And so, you know, it was all very, very clever, technically brilliant, an experience that is, 
Well, it was long, the experience, but, but, you know, I think he's a genius for a certain, like, you know, a certain kind of cooking. Fran Adria is brilliant, and it was like, brilliant, tried that, he's amazing, now I need a steak or something like that, because it's, it's, it's the postmodern mm. end of food, isn't it? It's seeing, you know, food is, the plate is not a plate, and the da -da -da, unreliable narrator, or whatever, whatever the version of that in food is. Um, but no, it was, but I just crave, like, a perfect steak and flavour, flavour. I forget that, that Flossie the cow came from a herd in Gloucestershire that had, you know, and her, her star signs Aries and her favourite Take That members, <laughs> Gary, I don't know. I don't want to know that, I don't care. If I go to a good restaurant, I want to trust that I'm going to this restaurant, I'm spending money, therefore I'll leave it in the chef's hands. And, I, he, he, you know, it's nice to know if the meat comes from what sort of breed, sort of ish, a bit train spotterish, but apart from that, I hate these long and lengthy descriptions and it takes longer to read it than it does to eat it. So it's what is on your plate being presented in front of you that matters, really, yeah. rather than its provenance or its source. I mean, provenance and source does matter when I'm buying things for myself mm. to cook. But I think that a decent chef, you should give him the courtesy of trusting that if he wants, you want to come to his restaurant and he's a chef who Michelin stars or not, and usually it's preferable not Michelin stars, because Michelin stars start poncing about and foams and cloches and all the rest of it and tons of waiters. Um, it's flavour for me straight out, Flavor, does it taste good? Right. And then backwards from there. Mm. So texture and, I mean, uh, describe the, what happens in the, your mouth when you're tasting <laughs> oh, a uh, fine bit of steak, a prime bit of I think, I think, scotch rump, for instance, or I just think, yeah, mm, porterhouse. Or, or, or spit it out, but <laughs> I think you're, I mean, there are many, many, you know, whether it's Heston Blumenthal or, or, you know, the Tom Kitching or any of these great, great chefs, you know, they're tasting for different things but my greed sits rather uneasily with my my so-called sort of aesthetic mm. qualities which aren't very many um, and so I'm usually so busy just eating it and doing it but you know the good food is everyone knows gives pleasure you know something like even a roast or you know not even a roast or a roast meat if it's done well with good meat it's something so spectacular that you just sit smiling on the other hand if it's rubbish meat and done badly and this is what the problem with English and British food is is that uh, British weather? Um, <laughs> is, is that is that you know? There's too many times the classic dishes are badly done, and so you get all tourists coming over from America, Japan, China, wherever they're coming from, and they're going to an Aberdeen Steakhouse, or they're going to a, a Wimpy, or they're going to all these places that you know keep perpetuating the myth of bad British food, um, which I think is unfortunate. I think the government should do more. I think it's pretty low down their list when the Tories get in, or if the Tories get in next year. But they should be getting people, you know, getting out to all the countries and getting, you know, giving them lists of where to eat well, where to shop well, you know. Well, I do think, I mean, just I, having grown up in Edinburgh, I don't remember eating out very much at all because there weren't that many restaurants. I mean, we used to go up to, I don't know if any of the ladies and gentlemen would know, the Falcon in Morningside, which is rather a classy sort of fish and chips, rather nice fish and chips, which we would go for before a visit to the Dominion Cinema around the corner from the Falcon. That's about the only time I remember. And restaurants in Edinburgh uh, were extremely rare, at least as far as I can. I sit corrected, I'm sure, in a discussion afterwards. And now <coughs> you walk down George Street or Rose Street, and you see restaurant cuisine from every corner of the globe that you can eat, you know, sush sashimi one night and, uh, I don't know, Argentine steak the next, or you kind of go on a cook's tour just by walking up and down a few streets in the locale. And that's one thing, our promiscuous tastes and our lack, perhaps, of strong native cuisine 
mean that we do have a, a better diversity of eating experience than, say, in France or Italy, where they look after their own? Absolutely. I mean, I, I went, because I'm um, doing a, um, an article for a magazine, to go to Paris, and they just said, go to Paris, go and find all the best restaurants. Is it still, you know, what it used to be? Difficult, again, difficult job. So off I went um, to go. And I didn't go to all the posh places so much, the Ducasses and the bloody blah, blah, because a three star restaurant around the world, you can pretty much, although the food, the ingredients, the chef are different, three stars means you get into the whole charade. And it's sometimes like going into a temple where no one talks and everyone's nervous and they're all sat, you know, in thrall. You know, we're paying. You know, we're coming here to eat and enjoy ourselves. So I, I don't want that sort of, uh, you know, church-like atmosphere. But the thing about Paris is Paris is one of the best places to eat in the world if you want to eat a special kind of French food. If you want to eat Chinese or Italian or Japanese, uh, Hungarian, anything, forget it. Because their food culture, like Italy, like China, their food culture is so entrenched and so strong, it does, the, the flip side <coughs> of it means that they're, they're pretty myopic about what, Oh, the food, oh, you know, it's so wrapped up in patriotism, nationalism even, uh, politics, society, culture in all those countries that it's seen almost as being, you know, you, why are you bothering with Japanese when you've got French? We've got everything here. Whereas if you go to London, that's the great thing about London for me as a city, is the immigration. It's made it into one of the most uh, cosmopolitan, you know, culturally diverse cities in the world. And as a greedy person, that is good news, you know. And it, make, it makes it for a much better city as well. I'm sure Edinburgh is the same. Do you have any culinary bet? No, I must confess, I've never much seen the point of creme caramel. And as to ratatouille, I think it's, to paraphrase Dorothy Parker, it's not a dish to be lightly picked up, but one to be chucked against the kitchen wall in fury. But uh, perhaps you disagree. What, what do you, can't, what can you not abide at any point um, well, sticking in your mouth? A goat's cheese, I think. Goat's cheese? Yeah, I hate it. It's like really? Piss. I'm yeah. very fond of partial to a bit of goat's cheese. Oh, it's stuff. <laughs> I can eat... I, the last book I did was travelling around eating weird stuff around the world. Nothing, no insect, no uh, sexual appendage of a different beast, nothing, nothing, nothing would compare to goat's cheese with that sort of, uh, sort of manure-y taste. And I always imagine that, that's not something I've done by the way, is, is if you licked a really filthy stable floor or, or pig stuff, that's what goat's cheese is. Even the mild stuff, ugh, I can taste it like the princess and the pea through about 15 different layers yes, of flavour. Yes, you can, you can horrible. Detect it wherever it is. Um, but anything else is. What's, I don't know, foams and towers and all that rubbish mm. as well. But that, that's each their own. But why, you know, it's always. It, I think thankfully it's mainly past this trend for. I know what, let's not do a sauce, let's do a foam. Mm. And you sort of poke around in some sort of disconsolate bowl with bits of foam and towers and smears on the plate. What are they about? Why, why do you put a smear on the plate? I mean, it's not enough to eat. It doesn't yeah, add much flavour. I suppose. Or, uh, exactly. Yeah. Gravy. It's like English restaurants calling gravy jus. Jus. If you're on a French <laughs> restaurant, it's jus. If you're in an English restaurant, it's gravy. Yeah. Or coulis being, I suppose, the, oh, coulis, the dessert all, side. And usually painted yes, all of that badly stuff, all over yes. the plate. Oh. And I suppose it's restaurant <coughs> cheese. Is, everything's pan fried. Well, what else would you fry but in a fry? I, it's, my other one, favourite one is it was a vine ripened tomatoes, as if, if the tomatoes just sort of sit, you know, suspended in, 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 in the ether. And now when we buy posh crisps, they're, the, they're hand carved. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, what you, you want the crisps to be crisp, presumably. You don't mind who's done the carving on the I mean, fry. this is, but this is all mm. part of the marketing 
of, isn't it? The sort of, this is not normal crisp, this is a Marks and Spencer crisp. Yeah. But, but actually, you taste the ready meal from Marks and Spencer's, from Waitrose, from Tesco, from Aldi, from Lidl, whatever. They all taste the same. They're all made at the same factory. They might have that little thing saying, taste the difference. They charge you two quid more for a prettier photograph. That's it. I mean, it's, it's a scam, all that. Total scam. You must have a very stuffed, strong constitution, Tom, judging by how much you... Oh, thank you very much. <laughs> You must have a very strong constitution, Tom, mm -hmm. judging by the amount of stuff you put, because you talk about the, the week you ate nothing but eggs for a, an article, which I think is taking the uh, devotion to the cause of journalism a little bit far. But by and large, you have a pretty strong stomach for anything that you, comes along. Pretty much on the whole, yeah, because, um, yeah. I mean, occasionally if you're at some odd bazaar in the middle of a, or a market, a street market in the middle of, Laos or, or, or somewhere in Southeast Asia and you know you have to you know as long as things are being cooked in street markets obviously they're fine because they're cooked in front of you sometimes you see something sitting around for a bit or it's something like salad something so boring you eat salad in India and suddenly you get dysentery it's not the you know the, the I'm trying to think of a, uh, the sheep's head or something that you're eating it's never that sort of thing it's, never just, it's always the most mundane boring Simple thing things, yeah. that, that do it but yeah I mean I don't think anyone wants to hear about mm -hmm. <laughs> two years of, of my tummy but but uh, yeah on the whole it, it's just well you're uh, looking very well on it if I may say so. <laughs> I've got a black jacket on it. I'm holding <laughs> my tummy as always well always very flattering <laughs> anyway let's have the lights up <clears throat> I don't know if this is still working uh, do you want this back presumably <laughs> microphone lady and I'm sure we've whetted your appetite for lots of questions for Tom so who's going to be the first ah there we are <clears throat> good afternoon Tom if haggis were French, would, would it be a delicacy and would it get a better press? Haggis is a delicacy. Even as an Englishman, I can say haggis is a delicacy. Again, nothing. Fried in butter or bacon fat even more with a fried egg on top. Again, it's back to that tripe thing is that the French have a much more interest, I suppose, in, in offal and all the rest of it. But how could, you know, a well-spot... McSween's, I know I'm probably not supposed to be pushing it, but McSween's we can get in England. That's a fine haggis. People who don't like haggis are just like, ugh, it's sheep's stomach, or, you know, it's, it's the thought. If you give someone to say, don't say what it is, they've never had haggis before, anyone who loves meat's going to love haggis. It's impossible not to, apart from the vegetarian ones that, that dodgy. I'm not being rude about vegetarians at all, but <laughs> vegetarian haggis misses the point. But I think uh, you could, if it was called, a, perhaps, you know, so much is about name, isn't it? And haggis is, is, is obviously a Scottish name, but I think it has a... Lovely name. I think it was called uh, Estomac de Agneau, or whatever my, my very pigeon French would do. It might sound nice in a posh restaurant, but it's a taste again. Taste haggis, and it's good haggis. Bad haggis is not very nice, but, but uh, yeah, I think, I think it, and that's a proper... proper I mean, there was a, wasn't there a news story a couple of weeks ago saying that apparently haggis wasn't, isn't originally Scottish, but oh. English <laughs> indeed. I, so I did read that. what's I your did. view on that, Tom? I'll keep well out of that one. <laughs> I did not. I did a yeah. Did a piece on. Obviously, if you think looking back through history, right back to sort of not quite prehistoric times, but the, the bladder um, or the stomach of an animal is a very very useful. You know, that's how you cook it. You, you stuff the bladder. That's where sausages came from. So yeah, I'm going to keep out of that one though. <laughs> well, I would have thought wild haggises would have wandered around both sides of the border <laughs> yeah. before being shot. But there we are. Now some more questions. Yes, here we are, front row. Hi, Tom. Hi. Uh, these days, we're all being exhorted to eat seasonally. You sort of obliquely touched on this. Um, firstly, what's your view of that vis-a-vis -vis carbon footprints? Mm. And secondly, I don't know which time of year you particularly researched your book, 
But if you'd done it at a different time of year, how different might it have been? Well, I mean, first of all, with, with the, the local question, that's the, everyone's talking about local, the seasonal, and seasonal especially. Now, I'm a, great, I'm a total believer in asparagus taste nice when they travel less far. Forget the carbon footprint. All those sugars tend to starch very quickly, and it's the same as peas. You know, they get less sweet. I like strawberries in summer, and I find that if they've travelled across the globe, they're not tasting so sweet. Grouse in, you know, well, actually, grouse doesn't really, it's not such a good example. So, in, in fundamentally, seasonality is a good thing. It means that you're getting things cheaper, you're getting them at their best, and, you know, from the more ecological point of view, it's not, you know, you're, you're saving on your carbon footprint. But, you know, you've got to be pragmatic. I love olive oil, I love lemons, I love pepper, I love chocolate. Um, I love all these things that, that we don't produce on a big scale. So, you know, January and actually February, March would be pretty dull if you just had to live on the seasonal stuff there. You know, you'd have a few turnips, a few winter brassicas. That's, that's really about it. So I think just a pragmatic approach, definitely, to, to seasonality is that, you know, celebrate everything in season and try not to eat all those... I mean, a strawberry from Chile or wherever it comes from in the middle of winter just doesn't have that sweetness. Actually, some of the supermarket strawberries from England are pretty second-rate this year, it seems, but that's not being rude about British food. That's supermarkets. Um, but I do think that... It is, impossible. it is important to eat seasonally because it, it, it gives you something to look forward to. And, and uh, it, now, for example, it, it's like I had my first grouse yesterday. I've been waiting for that. For absolute, and, then, and then the first native oysters come in beginning of September. So, you know, you're constantly looking forward to something coming through the, the plum. So it is important, but I can't believe people who just say you have to eat seasonally, you know. Um, but it is good for the environment as well. Talk, talk, <laughs> I'm not going to ask you for that. Talking of Chilean uh, strawberries in February, I was amazed at my Sainsbury's the other day at the height of summer to see that they were selling spring onions from Ecuador and cucumbers from Kenya. And I thought, blimey, you've got people growing them, you know, five minutes away. Why do we need to import this basic product from so far away using up all those carbon footprints? What's going on? Well, I mean, I try... I mean, Food, as everyone knows, it, it's, it's not just all oh, that stuff our faces. It's the politics, it's the economics, it's history, it's, all, it's everything, because all of us share the common experience of eating. Um, but I do think that, you know, the government... There's certain things the government could do, and, and I'm completely apolitical. I'm, you know, I'm interested in the government as much as it does the right things for producers and all the rest of it. But, for example, if the government or government decided to use local food in hospitals, uh, in schools, in uh, army bases, in civil service, wherever it is, just buying half of it locally, for example, then immediately you're putting money back into the economy, you know where your food's coming from, you're helping the local farmers. It, it just seems common sense. But what we forget about are the vested interests of all these huge, huge companies who have massive contracts with the government to supply hundreds of millions of pounds worth of food and of course in exchange they're not going to be happy if suddenly the government say we're not using you anymore you know the donations will start drying up all those nice bits and pieces that come from them so it's never the more I learn about it it's never black and white anything so but in an ideal world you'd hope that the conservatives would come in and say right let's start talking about local food and start you know the farmers have had such a a bad run over the last 15, 20 years. People still think that all farmers are minted because when those EEC subsidies came in. And, you know, people are on the, uh, literally desperate, you know, especially in whether, whether it's sheep or Arab, all over the place, there are huge problems. And, you know, it's, uh, I really think the government should support farmers more. But, and okay. we should as well. Indeed. Now, more questions? No more questions? I don't no. believe it. Yes, there we are. Here comes the mic. No. Where's she going? Over here, sir. Yeah, keep your hand up. 
Tom, it's well known that the royal family don't eat uh, a great deal when they go to official functions. I mean, if you were having extended family round uh, for, an inf <laughs> for an informal supper, I mean, what is this sort of British thing that you would lay on and you know that they would like to eat? I mean, sadly, as, as, as much as it might seem, I'm as a, very much a plebeian married in to that family. They don't actually come around much. Um, and, and actually, they don't come around at all, to be honest. Um, and I don't really go over there. If they did come over, I would probably um, get a chef to do it, to be totally honest, because I, I would crap myself having to cook. But I think, I mean, to be honest, I know nothing about, really, about this sort of thing, but just from my mum's my point of view, who, you know, has come into this, this gig late, um, she, I think if you go and eat everything, um, you know, the whole way through, you stuff your face. Everybody gives you a bit of fudge, a bit of booze, a bit of this. By the end of it, you're going to be half cut, you know, with your belly like that. And they're certain she doesn't eat garlic anymore. And I was like, oh, you haven't got one of those food fads, have you, or anything like that? And I, she said, no, no, I'm allergic to it, which she may or may not be, I don't know. Um, but I think the thing is that if you're the Prime Minister, or if you're the Royal Family, or if you're whoever you are, you don't want to be talking to 100 people with your breath stinky of garlic. Um, or chilies, for example. If you eat a very hot curry the night before, you don't want to be stuck 20 miles from a loo, I think, in the middle of a field looking at things. I think it's the practical side, that's, and that's about as far as I know, but they, they haven't been over very much. Well, I'd like to say very much, because it implies they might, but not at all. <laughs> <laughs> so. Well, I'm sure they'll be happy with fish and chips anyway. Yeah, so. yeah. Now, what's another, another question over here? No? Who's for another question? Yes, at the back there. Up you go again, microphone lady. Hi, Tom. Just wondering what your experience has been since you came to Edinburgh Food. I heard you mentioned grouse. I wondered if you've had any other nice or not so nice meals. Last time, oh, this is embarrassing, last time I came up here was last year, I think, and it was late. I'd heard about all these lovely restaurants, all the rest of it, and good fish and chips. I actually ended up in a hard rock cafe, uh, <laughs> which doesn't say much at all for my, for my thing. But well, I mean, you look at the, there's two kitchens here, aren't there? There's Tom, and then the guy who's just opened that very Heston-type restaurant that has been reviewed in all the papers, and he's called Keith Kitching. Anyway, I can't remember. Yeah, Kitching. So anyway, but, but you know, it's, if you look at Great British Menu, all the people coming from all over the place, it seems there's a resurgence in the British Isles. Slowly. Again, it's small, like I was saying. It's not this great revolution. But Edinburgh is as much a destination city, being a big cosmopolitan main city of Europe, than anywhere else is. And I think you could... I would love to go around and eat for a few days around here, but uh, <laughs> well, I can't, I'll do that in a couple of months. But, I mean, is it, is it, it's known as a great restaurant capital, isn't it? What about drink? Tell us, because I have to say there are several examples in the book where you complain of being slightly, uh, you know, the worst for wear after yeah. <laughs> the morning after the night before. <coughs> so, what are your favourite drinks? What are you looking for in wine or whiskey or... Beer um, or alcohol to start. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, I think I'm definitely, I, I call myself a food writer because even having done nine years as a food writer, you only begin to scratch the very, very surface of the whole thing. You, you know nothing. And as long as you know you know nothing and you're constantly open to learning more, fantastic. Wine, you know, that's what people have spent 30, whiskey, wine, all the rest have spent 30, 40 years learning about. And it's as big a subject in a different way as food. Um, but I like good claret. I love cider, not the crap cheap stuff, but proper cider that's either quite dry. Um, 
And talking of sort of native, I mean, beer, we are, it's beer, you know, England's always been beer and beef, really. You know, and beer was always drunk in, in the 13th, 14th, 15th centuries. You know, it, much, it was much weaker, but because the water wasn't trustworthy, so you drink the beer rather than drinking the water. Um, and good beer, I, I don't like fizzy lager very much, you know, Stella and, and Foster's and all that. I think we do some great, great ales in Britain. And uh, I'm just looking, again, for something. I don't like it too bitter. I want balance. Um, Nothing too strong. You don't want to be falling over after a pint. Um, and just again, something that's a pleasure to drink. Um, now you mentioned the Borough Market just now, which for those who don't know, London is based near London Bridge in the Borough, that part of the old Southwark, very close to the South Bank, the Shakespeare's Globe and Tate uh, Modern and everywhere else. It's all very happening sort of a place, and that's a pleasure to walk through because everything is laid out. Every conceivable food under the sun is beautifully displayed. It, mm. It's a real kind of aesthetic thrill for me if I'm going to work at Shakespeare's Globe to walk through the Borough Market. But what do you think of Borough Market, farmers markets in general? Because there was a bit of a, a mania for them for a while. As you say, all part of freshness, seasonality, individually handcrafted strawberries and whatever. Uh, do you think that bubble has burst now, or was too much expected of it? Or I think too many. With I mean, farmers markets are fundamentally a great thing, but all they're doing is going back to the the times I saw, not quite pre-industrialisation, but you know, up to the beginning of the 20th century and even to the mid 20th century, where markets were part of the of the fabric of life. You went to buy your food every day to cook it fresh, just like I know we tend to sort of look at it through rose-tinted spectacles, but the French and the Italians with their markets they take for granted. You know, you're buying fresh stuff every day, cooking it, there's far less waste. Um, Borough is fantastic, really, really great market, and a great showcase. Um, but you just wish that sometimes the farmer's markets, they are more expensive. Good food is more expensive. That's something the British still, I think, as a nation, have to grasp that good food does cost more to produce. But, you know, we're used to eating chicken breast every night now because it's so cheap, salmon every night now because it's so cheap and farm. But Really, you know, it's all very well for me to sit here wagging my finger as someone who lives in London writes about food and can buy whatever he wants. But perhaps to go back, well, to go back to trusting your butcher or your fishmonger, saying, you know, that that shin of beef, or whatever, it's much cheaper. It's still from a great animal. What should I do with that? Well, braise it in, under a low heat, you know, in a low heat for four hours, and it will fall apart into silken strands. It's more about information, you know, because people sit reading Jamie and Delia and Nigella and Gordon and all the rest of it. But it's gastro porn for a lot. It's still you still don't see it translating the basic cooking skills going across to people in Britain cooking. But I think we know. I mean, it'd be interesting to go back forty years and look what was in the supermarket then and what we ate then, because we have, we forget how much we've acquired in the last. I mean, things that I didn't know what an avocado was till I went to university. Chorizo sausage, uh, all the kind of delicacies that we now take for granted. We now know we're much more cosmopolitan in, in our awareness of food and possibly in our eating habits as well. But if it hasn't broken through into our mass eating habits. That's the point you're making. That there's this discrepancy between our interest, as you say, in watching food on television and buying recipe books, and then we still go for the, the Sainsbury's ready meal at night. I mean, it, it might go back, and this is what I was trying to say in the book, it might, there's, there's a whole sort of chain of events, what happened to English food in particular, was that if you can start right back in the Middle Ages with the Enclosures Act that took the peasants off their, their common land where they could graze their, their, their animals and, and um, sort of that removed them slightly, then you can move right through 
um, industrial revolution and then rationing and then women leaving the kitchen to work but men not replacing them so therefore losing the domestic backbone of our cooking um, but I, I think it's even deeper than that you can go you can give the historical or that this is why it happened but why are we still um, eating lots of junk why are we not translating our love of watching food and, and reading about food into actual cooking it I think you again it you know it's it's an impossible thing to say why I mean I just I mean, you, you can see why I had to change it again with children and cooking, but but you know, it's this voyeurism that that. Uh, that, that well, I think we, I think most Protestant countries as well would probably take the view that we live to eat, we eat to live rather than live to eat, and that there's something because in general, Northern Europe cuisine. I mean, look at a German cuisine. I mean, mm. sauerkraut, to my mind, is even more disgusting than that. Oh, I <laughs> and I, well, something could be said for Scandinavian and herrings and roll mops. Yeah. And, gravid lax and things, but no one goes droolings over Norwegian cookery, and I don't suppose Danish pastries are very Danish anyway, no. so isn't there a kind of northern European feeling that, A, it's colder, so we need stodge to fill us up and give us energy and keep us warm, uh, and there's less choice and less variety in what was grown, I suppose, as well than there is in Mediterranean countries. Um, so there's a climatic and oh, religious definitely. aspect too, isn't there? I mean, if you if you look at I mean the Northern Europeans, if you go to drinking, if you if you look with uh, England sort of upwards, and even the north of France, more you know, um, is that in terms of drinking, we drink to get drunk, whereas you go down south and it's more drink for the flavour, and you don't tend to find in Italy or. Uh, Spain, that same thing you might find in, in Southampton on a Saturday night or, or, dare I say, Edinburgh on a Saturday night, you know, tons of pissed up people, which nothing wrong with that at all, but it's a, different, it's, a, it's a different view of drinking, it's a different approach to drinking. I think with the food the same, you know, the further, the more you get up north, you know, you're talking very, very long, dark winters mm. and you need that sort of stodge uh, to keep you going. But one thing about British food is that if you think the full English to start with, that made sense when you're going off every day to go glass blowing or work down the mine or whatever. It was it was need it was food for uh, physical activity. Then that ghastly cereal came in in the fifties. Americans brought in cereal. I mean, I hate cereal as well. What I mean that's complete. And anyway, so we moved away from this sort of stodge base into the more cereal-based diet. And I think I should ask because you're not a puddings man, as you say yourself. Not really, no. So apart from the re lovely recipe for Eccles cakes, and I'm a big Eccles oh, Winnie cake Swarm fan. Yeah. Best, best recipe. And that's something we're very good at, surely. Oh, I mean, Christmas and pud, treacle pud, treacle dumpling, I mean, jam roly-poly, spotted dick, <laughs> I could go on and on, and we're all licking our lips, but that's surely something we have, the British have, contributed to world two, cuisine. Two, uh, two, two of our great, great things. Great and, and tarts. Going back to... How you can go on forever, can't you? I'm getting into a bit of a roll now. But if, if you look a back... cheese roll. They have... Uh, we're great... We're great pudding, but we're mm. great, great pudding cooks. We're, no one in the world comes near us in terms of, of pudding. Um, the French might say, but there's a much more sort of flouncy and, yes, and it's puddings and roasting. And if you go back to the 18th century, the 17th century, and I found lots of stuff in the British Library, in London Library, a guy called Monsieur Misson, who come back and sort of, you know, God bless the pudding, and come back raving to France about how wonderful our roasting was and how we understood, you know, how to do everything with our food. And so those are two things, roasting and puddings. But again, you know, people will look down in other countries saying, you know, uh, they're based, but roasting is a great art, as is pudding making. Yeah. And what about clouty dumpling? Do people still eat clouty dumplings? And something <laughs> I've never had, I've always wanted to have a You haven't brought any with you, have you, madam? No. <laughs> you know what, 
you know what a clouty dumpling is? I, I've, I've, I haven't had one, but I'm looking through the thing. It, what is it? Sort of. Uh... Well, it's well. Who likes to? Who wants to uh, give a definition of a clouty dumpling? The lady there was nodding earlier on. Do you want to do it, madam? <laughs> Tell us what it is. Here comes the microphone. Oh, it's steamed in a, a cloth. And suet-based. Yes, yeah. suet-based with lots of spices and currants and raisins. And uh, I know my mum makes it. And in fact, I've got the recipe. I've never made it myself, but I know it takes a long time to cook. It's better than Christmas pudding. Christmas pudding. <laughs> right, so let's Thank hear you. it for dumpling. <laughs> anyway, have time for some more questions, I think, on putty dumplings or anything else. <laughs> yes, there we are. Tom, in your last book, you spoke about sushi as being the new thing that had come in and everybody was having and making and what have you. What do you predict is going to be the next fad? Oh, God, there's a, there's a different... It's, it's a, I mean, sushi came very quickly in and, and took over, but then you get... You know, the thing about sushi is that fish, good fish, is expensive. Fresh fish is expensive, so therefore never trust an all-you-can-eat sushi place. Never trust... Oh, that place with that. I mean, there's some very good conveyor belt ones, but that yo sushi, I mean, that's just an abomination. Filthy. Um, but in terms of, I think what's coming back, and I would say this in terms of this book, is, is going back to, the, you know, a, a really good cheddar, or going back and rediscovering as British people, you know, searching out the cheeses that we have, or, I mean, there is a trend at the moment to put this, like we said, this cow comes from this field and does this and that. There's a great sort of, you know, provenance thing that everyone's mad about, but I think as that trickles down from the sort of two-star restaurants down to all of us, if you see what I mean, and buying and eating, I think it's a renewed, I hope, a renewed pride in, in what we do produce. Because Britain produces a lot of rubbish. There's a lot of industrial muck out there. Uh, there's a lot of intensive farming. But on the other hand, there is a glimmer of light now. Um, and again, it is expensive still. I mean, not everything. Good fish and chips aren't expensive. Mm. Good black pudding is not expensive. Right. But you have to pay a little bit more than the big mass produced. But I think, I hope that's the next... I, trends scare me but I hope that's here to stay rather than some being some transient thing is is a belief again in, in in the quality of our ingredients and dishes and all the rest so you would urge us to go and shop local and look local and explore what there is I mean on our doorstep yeah. definitely but again with that slightly you know slightly cynical thing in that just because you know the the cabbage down the road is local doesn't mean it's going to taste mm. any better you know you've got to go into it thinking first does it look fresh all the rest of it but Local is not just a, you know, some marketing phrase. It really, it really does make sense if you're if you're doing it sensibly. If you're doing, like, why? because Scottish seafood is much sought after, isn't really? it? The oh, long long season, season, you know. But in Paris and in Spain and in Italy, they, they take all the best stuff always. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so why don't we start to develop a taste for it? Well, I hope we will. And I hope, and you see, even chains like. Um, look fine you know that that wouldn't have happened 20 years mm. ago coming over you know offering good quality seafood i haven't been for a couple, couple few years but you know i i think we do the high end very well in britain the hestons and all that sort of thing and we do the low end very well the uh, the fish and chips or the sausages or whatever it is but it's the middle that we lack we lack restaurants that you can go to neighborhood restaurants that you can go to in a city without paying more than 20 quid a head for half with a half bottle of wine you know nothing poncy nothing over the top mm. you know it's just and that's what we're lacking. We're lacking that sort of core that's of, sort of mid-market. Mid, mid of decent restaurants that are affordable and not over the top and hugely overpriced. More questions, please, ladies and gentlemen. Yes, a hand here. Can I go back to puddings? Yeah. Because <laughs> you were going down really well with me, especially the stuff you said about 
the disgusting, truly disgusting food you had at prep school, <laughs> until you said that British puddings were good. Oh. And I'm not sure how you can say that when, the, when you've got Portuguese puddings to compare with it. Portuguese only have two puddings, don't they? <laughs> Custard tart and... Uh... Well, <laughs> British puddings consist of flour with all sorts of disgusting fats added to it. Fats are never disgusting. <laughs> fats are flavour. Fats are where the heart is. I, I agree they are quite stodgy, but then you think of the summer pudding, you know, which is, I suppose it's stodgy-ish, isn't it? It's got a bit of bread in it. You're right, it has, all British puddings do have, but, you know, that's, that's our... Um, it's their appeal, I would have thought. Yeah, I think stodge, it's, it's, it's a stodge. factor. I'm just trying to think what else, what light puddings do we have? Any light puddings we have in Britain? Well, I suppose milk puddings you're thinking of. Delicious mm. things like tapioca. Tapioca, yeah. Farola and sago. But sticky toffee pudding, I don't, I, I don't like pudding, but I defy anyone, unless you don't like treacle or sponge. But there are weird people who like the skin on the top. Oh, yeah, I know, I know. It's, it's, um, Any custom. skin lovers here, ladies and gentlemen? Oh, yeah, <laughs> full of skin lovers. I mean, custard, I mean, the French nicked it and said creme anglaise, but it's not, we did it first. It's yeah. British. Good old custard. <laughs> now, any other points or comments or questions, ladies and gentlemen? Yes, front row again. What about our organic food? Is it oh. worth the... Uh... Oh, uh, we, can, we can sit here all year on this one. Um, in, oh, I have to get in, in a really boring... This is my view, but in, a, in, a, in just summed up. Organic farming is, at, at its heart, a sustainable system of agriculture that, that um, puts the... This, you all know this, but puts the nutrients back into the soil. It's not, for want of a better word, raping the soil, taking out all the nutrients and not returning them back like intensive farming does. So it is undoubtedly a very, very good and sustainable form of, of agriculture. You see reports, and even the most cynical of um, scientists who, who say organic means nothing, will admit that organic farms see a huge diversity of wildlife coming back in from the butterflies to the newts to whatever it is, because of that lack of chemicals, it builds up a decent sort of ecosystem once more. Um, so on that half, I'm a huge believer in it. Now, on the other hand, I'm a total disbeliever in those sort of people who have to buy everything organic, organic ketchup, organic, organic this, organic that, without thinking. Now, whether it's the poor old green beans that always get used as an example from Kenya or, uh, the, you know, organic baked beans, I, I don't believe in that. I believe that if you go to your butcher and you ask him, you know, what's the best lamb you have today, most of the time, with my butcher anyway, it won't be organic. Now, there's some very, very good organic farmers, but also there's some exceptionally good old-fashioned conventional farmers who say to me, why should we have to pay all this money to jump through a hoop, to sit and be... We've farmed like this for 300 years. We, we use minimal chemicals. You know, our customers would not come back if our meat was, was rubbish. Therefore, organic is just for people who think they want to tag and... Um, and just, you know, oh, I want organic because it, it's good for you and the rest of it. Supermarkets, of course, as well, have jumped on it because they can charge double for it. It doesn't matter if it doesn't taste or anything. Oh, no, it's organic and it's good for you. So I think, you know, I, it's a brilliant system of agriculture. It does make food more expensive because it's more work intensive. But I hate the idea that people think that only organic is good and anything not organic is bad. That's, that's my problem. So it's worth it if it tastes nice, I think. Right, <laughs> any final thoughts or questions, ladies and gentlemen? Yes, at the back there. You have that, madam. Thank you. Well, there's the final question. Um, for your last supper, what would you ask to be cooked, and who <laughs> would um, you ask to cook for you? Um, I would. So it depends on the hour of the day, of the week, of the month. But on the whole, I think um, 
I suppose I should say something British. I think I think something like a really good steak or a really good roast, really, really good roast beef, properly hung, carved wafer thin with Yorkshire puddings and good gravy. That's a fantastic meal, whatever. If I was being less PC and, and more about pure greed, I think a huge pile of Iranian or Russian caviar would never go amiss. Um, <laughs> but that's not sustainable. But we buy the farm stuff because it's very bad. That, that, that and it's cost about a billion, million pounds. Um, but I think it would it probably would be something basic. Potted shrimps, maybe. I think potted shrimps, now that we used to pot a lot, obviously, in Britain before refrigeration, the butter would seal in. There's potted hams and all the rest. But Or a crab, a really fresh crab, just boiled up, um, eaten with mayonnaise. Simple. It would be nothing chef at all. There'd be no towers or smears or foams. <laughs> it would be proper, proper food uh, that tastes good. So something like that, and with meat as well, and fish. Well, I shall look forward to that, Tom. When you invite me around to meet the folks, that will be on the menu. <laughs> and I think there's some Iranian caviar waiting for you in the author's yurt after that. And I should say that uh, Full English also includes some traditional recipes, ladies and gentlemen, for such delights as potted shrimps, which I'm a big fan of, so I'm delighted you put those in. Real pork scratchings. I didn't realise you could get real pork scratching. I thought they were a a sort of invention by some marketing man from Golden Wonders. Angels on horseback, very special angels on horseback. They're all from every, they're taken from, they're not my recipes, yes. they're from proper chefs. <laughs> and steak kidney and oyster pudding from London, which sounds delicious, and for that sort of country house experience, kedgeri in oh, the full English. So lots to digest as well in full English. Ladies and gentlemen, you won't be surprised to hear that Tom will be signing copies of the book <laughs> next door in the signing area, out those doors, turn right and right again. It's been a fascinating session. It's made me absolutely starving, so I can't <laughs> wait to get on. But ladies and gentlemen, please join me in thanking our guest, Tom Parkerbell. <laughs>